0: Hi everybody, this is Sunny Morning, and I'm proud to be on here with Rick Flynn today. We're going to catch up on some old times and talk about some new. Hang on. You're listening to Rick Flynn. With a shout out from London Town, it's Rick Flynn presents.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, your MC for the affair, Rick Flynn. right everybody welcome come on in what a great day today beautiful weather considering what we've been through here in the midwest usa hello all throughout the united states hello to our second largest market where this program is heard and that is of course the uk thank you to all of my friends over in england scotland wales Ireland. Today, I want to bring on this excellent musician who, when I had my college band, and I did not know this at the actual time I had the band, but we were the house band at a place. It was called the Rusty Nail, and it was one of the top places where a student at Miami University could go. And across the street, We had another club directly across the street, and in that club, we had the group that you all know right now as Ram Jam that did that song, Oh, Black Betty, Bam the Lamb, Oh, Black Betty, you all know that song. Well, they were not called Ram Jam at that time. That was the original group that wrote with Bill Bartlett on guitar and arranged that song They were called Starstruck, and it was Starstruck that put the record Black Betty out. It became a regional hit, and that's how Ram Jam got going, and it went national. So at any rate, they were across the street, Roger and the Human Body, featuring Warner Brothers recording artist, as he later became to be, Roger Troutman. They also played across the street. He, of course, released albums. I think every one of the albums he released went to the top 10. His hit record, California Love, with Tupac Shakur, was a number one record, if I'm not mistaken. It was a fabulous hit. And all this happened during my college years. We put lines at the door at our club. And when the line was too long, people would go across the street. And then the people across the street, when it died down over at that club, they'd come over to our club. And it was just a wonderful time where everybody was coming out. And that's where my next guest comes in. Because I didn't find out until he told me years later. He said, Rick, I used to sneak in your club just to hear the band play. And who is it? It's now Atlas recording artist, Sonny Mormon. Come on in here, Sonny. Is that true or is that not true?
0: well the, the the awful part is it's it's so true in fact I got thrown out of the rusty nail for trying to ride my 500 Kawasaki motorcycle up those stairs and into the front door once too. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, I I just don't think your listeners can grasp what a happening scene this was. This was out in McGonagall, Ohio, which is like basically a stop sign.
1: Right. If you wink your eyes, you're through it.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Tiny little town, but it had the two most jumping roadhouse clubs, I think, that I've ever seen right across the road from each other. And you're right. People would go in one club and get stamped and then stagger across a really busy two lane highway and wander into the next and people wandered back and forth across the road all night long it's a wonder people didn't get killed there but it was just it was a great time man and it was it was something else you're familiar with randy mcnutt's book aren't you Guitar
1: oh Towns. randy uh, uh Sonny, i don't know if you're aware of this but randy has been a guest on this show
0: Well, I I figured he'd had, I mean, you'd have to have Randy. I mean, he's, he's pretty much the guy for knowing what happened in music around here. Randy's not only one of the smartest guys I've ever met, but one of the nicest.
1: Right. We did a show, Sonny, it was called the Wayne Perry story starring Randy McNutt. And he told the story of Wayne Perry, which we used to back in the day, we called him little Wayne Perry because of his size, and he told the story of how little Wayne Perry went from a local Hamilton, Ohio, blue-eyed soul singer to a millionaire songwriter and producer down there in Nashville. So yes, we're familiar with Randy McNutt. He was an Enquirer, Cincinnati Enquirer, which is our only major newspaper in Cincinnati. We used to have two, the Post and Time Star, which was an afternoon paper. They went out of business years ago. So now we have our morning paper, the Cincinnati Enquirer, and Randy wrote a column for them and was a featured writer for that newspaper for 30 over 30 years i believe
0: in his book guitar towns he chronicles what went on in McGonagall because originally the club across the street from the rusty nail was called the twilight inn
1: oh i don't remember that
0: Oh, yeah, that goes back further. And the reason Lonnie Mac's band was called Lonnie Mac and the Twilighters was because they were the house band at one time there. Oh
1: well, that,
0: I mean, it's like the most jumping it, you know, it's just one of the most jumping spots on earth at one time and had been forever. I mean, you got the you got the second generation of it, and I was too young to be in there legally, but at the time, my folks, Owned bars in the Hamilton area. They had a club downtown called the Office that Cal Collins used to play at.
1: Right, he's a jazz. He was a recording artist that made jazz records.
0: Oh yeah, Cal played in the Benny Goodman's sextet. Cal was the real deal. But the other club my folks were involved in, they were they had a half interest in a place called the Halfway Inn, which was the the third of the infamous places in in a, in, in in the Hamilton area. And Lonnie used to play at the halfway once in a while, but he started out, his first band was playing at the Twilight Inn, hence the name Lottie Mac and the Twilighters. And that was what became the King of Clubs, which was right across the street from the Rusty Nail.
1: And that's exactly what it was called when I was playing at the Rusty Nail. It was called the King of Clubs. Bill Bartlett had the Lemon Pipers. He is the guy that played the sitar on that record Green Tambourine, which was a number one record. We've had the singer of that, Ivan Brown, on this show already. People can look it up. It's right there on our shows. Ivan Brown sang Green Tambourine. It was a number one record. February
0: 6th, 1967 was the
1: week they were number one. And Sonny, I can tell you that when your father owned a place on route four in the Hamilton area. It was out there kind of in the vicinity of the Swordsville Lake amusement yeah, that's park. It was that's called the halfway, halfway Inn. In. And do you know who your dad's partner was? If you can sure. recall, because oh, his yeah. son was my road manager when we used to go out with my DJ show.
0: Yeah. Dad's partner was red car
1: and his son.
0: If you knew, if you knew, if you knew red real well, you called him ducky (laughs) you did because like my father red was from middlesbrough kentucky when red was a little kid he used to follow my grandfather ebenezer tinsley around on his beat ebenezer was a cop and walked his beat and red followed him around like a little duck which is why he got the name of Ducky. I mean we uh, our two families go back so far it's it's not funny. Another one of his sons delivered both of my kids.
1: He is a medical and one doctor. Of, and one
0: of my grandkids. Yeah.
1: And, yeah uh we're, his we're son became a doctor. I don't know if you remember this or if you have any knowledge of this but after red retired from being your dad's partner in that bar, he went and relocated down to Kentucky. Do you remember that? Yeah, he went, went down in oil wildcatted. Yeah, he went drilling wells and he bought, he had this plane. I swear to you, he's the only human being in my life. And I mean, seriously, I don't even know of a second one I could begin to conjure up. He had an airplane that was, that he owned, that was an amphibian. It would land on yep. land and it would land on water. Yep,
0: yep, yep, yep. Do for you remember? Time, did you know that? Yeah, I did. course, uh, Red was always into flying. My dad was for a little bit too. For a while, they had a plane together. Of course, that they kept over here at Hamilton Airport. But yeah, years I've I've seen pictures of that plane actually. I never oh. I never got to see it for real. But I've seen the I've seen the the amphibian plane.
1: Okay, so my road manager's dad and your dad owned nightclubs, and yep. I happen to know. And I I don't even know if you know I know this, but you told me years ago, years, this was nothing recent. And first of all, before I go, have we discussed this program in advance and what I was going to ask you? And I want you to tell the audience seriously.
0: I'll tell you the absolute truth. Not one little bit.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, when I hooked up Sonny on this show, I said, Sonny, I'm not going to waste any time. Let's just go. I counted it down and we went. There was no pre-meeting. There was no pre-discussion. But years ago, Sonny, you told me that when Lonnie Mack, the great recording artist, one of the significant significant guitar people in rock and the blues he used to leave his guitar up there on the stand on the stage in your dad's nightclub and what did you do
0: well you know now I have to I have to change that story just a little bit I've done a little more homework since then that wasn't actually Lonnie's guitar
1: Oh, I thought it was his his Flying V.
0: Brother Bill's guitar, that may have been somebody he he would sit in. His band never really played at the halfway. Lonnie would come in and sit in, and he would bring like Dumpy Rice with him, who was also like, like the greatest keyboard player ever been. And they would come in and sit in, but Lonnie's band itself never sat in there. So while I would sneak up and play the guitar that Lonnie had been playing, that may or may not have been his guitar, but I'll tell you what I did get to do. His daughter Holly brought me Lonnie's real V, the real the real nineteen 19- 57V up from Nashville so I could play the uh, 75th anniversary of King Records show. Now that that's an absolute fact and also she's brought it up so I could play it for for a couple other shows up here. Now that time I actually have played not only Lonnie's guitar but the iconic flying V that he's famous for. Years ago, I can't tell how I was a little kid, I don't remember, you know, it may have been that guitar It may have been somebody else's guitar. It was a It was a guitar that Lonnie Mack had played while he was playing at the halfway. Right. Was it a Gibson guitar or not? I can't honestly say.
1: Was it a Gibson Flying V?
0: finally clear that up because I've had other people ask me about that, too.
1: Right. Was it a Gibson Flying V or a different brand?
0: You know, I can't tell you. What Holly brought me, of course, was Lonnie's real V. Right. You know, when I played at the, the shows here within the last few years. Way back then, man, I was nine years old. I don't know.
1: <laughs> oh, oh, Well, th- let's put it this way. When your dad owned the halfway in, you were in there behind closed doors. When the business was not open, the doors were locked. You were playing somebody's guitar in there. Now, now that is an absolute fact. (laughs) Okay, let me move forward. How, in the name of God, other than the fact that your management for years was the same management as the Allman Brothers Band, how did you play, in reality, in real life, Dwayne Allman's actual guitar? How did that happen?
0: Well, once again, it was... It was a great deal of Willie Perkins' influence, who had been the Allman Brothers manager, and is still involved to a significant extent in the big house Allman Brothers Museum in Macon, Georgia, and still involved. He's written, Willie's written a couple of incredible books. One's called No Saints, No Saviors, which is Willie's story of his time with the Allman Brothers, which is a book that anybody that has any interest in the Allman Brothers has to read. It's exactly like sitting down at the kitchen table and listening to Willie talk about it. But how I ended up there is the guitar, for, when I when I first uh, got the chance to do it, the guitar actually belonged to a guy named Scott Lamar, who was the boss of Kyle a, a fellow named kyle mcclenahan who was the best friend growing up of my drummer dave fair so scott owned the guitar he was fine with me playing it willie perkins is in georgia dealing with the big house so the first time i went down to to headline uh Gabba Fest, which was uh, 2012 Willie brought me that guitar out on stage. There's some real good video of that on YouTube. All you have to do is look up Sonny Mormon Gabafest 2012, and there's a a bunch of video that was shot on that, and that's good. But here recently, Richard Brent brought me up Dwayne's guitar, Dwayne's Gold Top, Les Paul. The same day that Holly brought me up Lonnie Mack's guitar, and we played at the Southgate house, in, over in Newport. And I did a set of Almond Brothers stuff on Dwayne's guitar. Then I did a set of Lonnie stuff on his own V. That was, that was like the greatest day in the world.
1: Oh, I can believe For me. every For bit me. of that. Every bit of that. Sonny, what was it back in the nightclub days with your dad and my road manager's dad and the amusement park, Lasordsville Lake, which was more, as far as I'm concerned, than an amusement park. You paid one small amount of money just to get in the gate as your admission fee. And that included your admission to Stardust Gardens, which was this tremendous outdoor venue, although it had a roof over it, but no walls. And in would come Tommy James and the Shondells singing, right. my baby does the hanky-panky. Right. All of these acts, the syndicate of sound singing, hey, little girl. Um, uh, uh, Rick Derringer, the McCoys, hang on, Snoopy. Absolutely. We would have uh, uh, all kinds of, of recording artists, and they were generally sponsored by by WSAI AM WSAI and the good guys. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Friday night at the
0: lake, man. It was famous. I was just I was just I was just too young to go out there for those nights. Right. When I was a kid, we had my next door neighbor was Diane Warner who I've actually seen. She lives in Florida now. And I, I last time I was down playing in Tampa, her and her husband came to see me and she's still she's still gorgeous. You know, she She would go out there and that was that was it. That was what she called it It was Friday night at the lake. Are you going to Friday Night at the Lake? You know, and I'm like, you know, I'm staying home and watching Star Trek or whatever, you know, because I'm a kid. But that was I don't think people today can imagine how hip that scene was. And in fact, I'm gonna say something that may draw the ire of some Cincinnatians. But in my mind, a lot of what's credited as being the Cincinnati music scene was Hamilton.
1: I'm not going to uh dispute that because you
0: really know, you know, when you start talking about bow dollar
1: bow dollar and know, the playing, coins playing
0: with uh playing with James Brown and all that stuff those were all Hamilton guys, man.
1: That's true. That's so true. Yes. You know, I
0: was just lucky that as a kid man, I knew some of these guys. You know, I mean, I knew Cal Collins. I didn't realize at the time what a world-renowned monster guitar player he was. He was the guy that gave me lessons at 3 o'clock on Friday afternoons at Meehouse Music.
1: Right, which is the only major music store in downtown Hamilton still to this day. Yeah. Uh, it was, uh, he, didn't he play like with Barbara Streisand or Sinatra or somebody of that stature?
0: You know, I don't know that. I wouldn't doubt that. But to me, the epitome of what he did, we well, played with Woody Herman a little bit, too.
1: Okay. But the
0: epitome of what he did was he held down Charlie Christian's guitar chair in the Benny Goodman sextet. As far as jazz guitar combos, it doesn't go any deeper than that.
1: Yeah, right. And lo and behold, as Sonny Mormon matured, from that young man that tried to ride his motorcycle <laughs> down the, what was it, down the steps or up?
0: Oh, no, up the front steps. I was coming in.
1: Oh, Lord almighty. They wouldn't
0: let me, they wouldn't let me in. And,
1: and so you got the I was, bike.
0: I was going to come in anyway.
1: Oh, well, since that day, Sonny, years went by, I graduated Unfortunately, and I do mean unfortunately, our band broke up, and the only reason, the only reason why our band broke up is because the man that you probably came to see with our band was a man that played a black Gibson Les Paul recorder, and his name was Eric, and he he went to law school, and we knew— that he was gonna be, he was very intelligent, and he was going to become an attorney, and we knew that, everybody in the band knew that. He was the only guitarist that we ever had, other than Don, our uh, utility man, who ran lights and played congas. He also had a Gibson Les Paul, but we only used Don on particular songs. The master guitarist was Eric, and when he was about to graduate law school and become a full-time attorney, that did it for the band. Had that not happened, Sonny, you know what? It would not have shocked me. And I mean this seriously, whether or not this band would have continued indefinitely.
0: Well, I'm telling you, man, it was a great band. And I'm not saying that just because me and you were on the phone right now. It truly was. I was there, and I went to see it, and... I I can testify.
1: And, I mean, tell the people, did we draw any crowds, Sonny, or not?
0: Well, I think, I wish I could explain this to people. The actual party room of the Rusty Nail was downstairs in the basement. Yes, Upstairs, they had a little bar, and actually they'd served, they went through a period of time where they'd serve breakfast there after the bar closed. But anyway, you went downstairs to party. And I've seen that place so crowded. I mean, I hate to say this. A, a fire marshal would have shut the place down <laughs> in, a, in a New, York, true. In a New true. York second because there'd be people lined up all the way down the stairway. And then, of course, the whole downstairs is so full you can't get around.
1: That's true. That
0: wasn't the biggest place in the world, but it was packed.
1: Oh, I'm telling you, Sonny. I
0: can I can close my eyes and see that right now, and the and the girls, the girls out on the dance floor doing the bump.
1: Oh yes, I'll so yes. Let
0: you know what year that was. About seventy four, man, is uh. what I'm thinking <laughs> of.
1: Yeah. Oh, now you mentioned the little bar upstairs. That bar had a. Pianist, a piano player, a honky-tonk piano player, who you already have mentioned in this interview today, right now. You mentioned him because he later went on to write, to take, as they call in the business, quote, take the B-side ride on a single by Elvis Presley called Honky Tonk Angel. Yep. Who was that? That's Dumpy Rice. Dumpy his Rice. Real name, his
0: real name was Denzel. But when Dumpy was born, one of his aunts looked at him and said, that baby looks kind of dumpy. And he was Dumpy Rice from the re- from that point onward.
1: I born never like, knew. You never I, knew I, how I, he I got love, that name. I,
0: I loved that man like he was family.
1: He was Lonnie Mack's guitar player. He wrote a song that keyboard, was recorded.
0: Keyboard mostly. Keyboard mostly. Now, Dumpy could play guitar.
1: Oh, okay. No, yeah, I didn't. I'm sorry, I Dumpy misspoke. Could,
0: Dumpy could play guitar. In fact, I had the last time he came in and played with us, I was playing at a little place called the Red Fox over in, uh, oh, geez, Springdale, I guess it is. Little bitty place, little bitty place in the mall. And he came in, and I'd just gotten, me and a partner of mine had bought this beautiful 1958 Gibson ES45, 345. I just that was the first night I played it and he came in and he said, Man, I'll play guitar. And I said, you know what? Hell yeah, you will here. And I gave him that 345 that I couldn't afford to buy because me and a partner had bought it together and we we bought it to resell it and blah, blah, blah. It's a long story. But man, I, I'd forgotten what a good guitar player what he was. He had this little fingerpick boogie thing that I think he he made up or he wrote. I've never heard anybody play. I wish I would have recorded it. So I could hear it back, but he got up and played that and a couple other things, but yeah, he could play guitar, but he was, to me, he was the epitome of a honky tonk piano player. He was the real, he was the real deal in every sense.
1: He always used to look forward, Sonny, to that once a year time when the check would roll in for the the royalties on his yeah. Elvis record oh oh that was that was like a national holiday to him he it, there was enough money there <laughs> that i think he could have made it the whole year on that
0: if he could stay away from the horse track
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. Well, my parents, God bless them both. They're 88 now. And one day a young man shows up and he was an official city worker dressed in city clothes. He had the city of Hamilton waterworks badge that he presented. And we let him in I happened to be there with them at the time. He drove a city vehicle, so I knew it wasn't a sham. It was a legitimate City of Hamilton vehicle. He came in. He said, we have to check the meter, of course, like we do for the whole neighborhood. And he came in, and he went downstairs, and he saw a set of drums over there that was not mine. It was my dad's. And he said, ah, drums. He said, yes, yes, that's my set. My son also plays. He said, well, my dad is a musician. He said, oh, really? He said, yeah. Well, who is your dad, son? He said, his name is Dumpy Rice. Yeah, that's Brian. Oh, is that who
0: that was? Yeah, it's Brian Rice. I just recently reconnected with Brian. Yeah, Actually, he and I played together for a very short time back in the 80s, and it just... We just didn't have anywhere to go with it, so that kind of fell apart. But Brian is a great player as well.
1: And he plays the guitar or the keyboards or what?
0: Brian's a drummer. Now, he may play some guitar, too. I don't doubt that all those guys play some guitar. I remember Brian as being a drummer and a really good one. Good, good, fat, fat back, backbeat kind of. You know, there's a certain... i'm gonna go back to hamilton again there is a certain drum sound that came out of hamilton that i don't think anybody digs that where where it came from you know i wouldn't say that it was invented here but man it was sure stylish here and it was it was kind of it was kind of like soul music it was kind of like the stuff that was coming out of stacks but You know, it was really heavy on the backbeat, and these drummers would wait as long as they could in the bar to play that snare drum, man. Just lay it way back, and I miss that. I I look for that in drummers
1: nowadays. If anybody can do that, man, we, we we can play in a band, you know what I mean? Absolutely. You know, I used to be strictly thanks to Ringo Starr, of course, which changed my life and the life of the whole world, especially if you were a musician. But I used to think it was rock and roll only, which was where the drums were. And that's how I started. But then I started watching years ago, the the original, the original David Letterman show. When they had a guy playing drums there, his name was Steve Jordan. Does that oh, ring yeah. a bell to you? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Steve Jordan went on to record with Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones on solo projects. He recorded with Aretha Franklin. He recorded some new wave, some punk rock. He became a studio player and producer. And I would listen to him on that less is more that's for sure style that he had he could play behind everybody and he was funky but he was inside that pocket and when you tried to play that way to some of these rock and roll bands they got p.o'd sonny they didn't like it (laughs) (laughs) Oh, believe me. You you and
0: me get along fine, man.
1: Oh, I'm telling you, I've idolized that guy. He was fabulous at what he did. And Bootsy brought him in for a date where I DJ'd it and Bootsy had the band up there. And Lord Almighty, he had the road man at the theater take off the ride tom on top of the bass drum. They took yeah, it off. Yeah. He said, well, they had a warm-up back that used that same set, and they needed those toms. He said, remove them. And they took off the ride tom-toms on top of the bass drum. Steve Jordan gets out there with a bass drum, a snare drum, and a floor tom-tom, and sets the world on fire. He was right in there, Sonny.
0: Oh, I'm hey, man, you're, you're preaching to the choir here, now.
1: <laughs> yes. Oh, man, Sonny. You ask why I didn't interview you in advance with a pre-interview. You ask me why I don't have any notes in front of me. Sonny, the reason for that is you've lived a life. I've lived a life. We've been around you and I in the same town for, uh, what is it now, 50 years or 45?
0: Oh, well, yeah, it's getting up there, pal. It's yeah. getting
1: up there. <laughs> and Sonny, every time people mention you, the same exact words come out of my mouth. I'm sure it's gotten back to you because I'm not saying anything behind your back that I would not say to your face. And that is when the name Sonny Mormon comes up, I immediately say, that darn Sonny, he could be out there making millions playing with one of these national acts, but I, his I whole wish, life. I
0: wish that were. I wish that were more true. I would. I would have done that in a heartbeat. But I guess that the honest truth is, and I think this was another trait of Hamilton musicians, is that we are very stubborn about the music we want to play.
1: And in your case, it turned out to be blues. Yeah. And you know, Sonny, as a promoter, I'm going to tell you, that's one of the most difficult forms of music to sell.
0: Absolutely.
1: And the reason why, well, let's just take any blues club, be it Chicago or we had little Chicago blues in town here once, and they brought in national acts. But in the field of blues, Sonny, when you're a national act In blues, you, nobody knows who you are. You could be at the grocery store, as I've told somebody before. They could be putting, you could be putting your groceries on the conveyor. They could be in the line looking at you and you looking at them right behind you. And you'd never know that's a national blues star. They're relatively unknown.
0: From, from 10, from 2010 through 2013, intrepid artists booked us and intrepid is one of the big blues booking agencies possibly maybe maybe number two you know but they are way way up there you know and we toured with guys like walter trout and uh a uh, room full of blues and all these name name blues acts but we still weren't you know there's just it's just hard to make money in it
1: exactly there's not,
0: there's not money to be made fortunately you can make a subsistence. And of course, now that you can't tour at all, I'm really fortunate that I've been home. I've played a lot of local gigs. Like last night, I played a little solo gig. Tonight, I'm playing a little duo gig. Uh, You know, I stay busy. And anybody that wants to know how busy I stay can look at sunnymormongroup.com and see my schedule.
1: And do you have any CDs or records for sale?
0: I do. In fact, I have a vinyl record out that was just, that is blues album of the year for 2020 uh, voted by uh, the largest independent music organization in the world, a thing called just plain folks. And I didn't even know it happened till like the day before somehow they got my material blues album of the year worldwide.
1: You have won a room full of, of awards i've seen the awards and i seriously think you could buy a four bedroom home use three of the bedrooms and the fourth one and i'm dead serious the fourth bedroom if you were to put shelves in it it, it that's what you're going to need for the awards you've won
0: i've been fortunate like that i'll tell you the the one that i'm it's hard to say but the Certainly one of the ones I'm most proud of is I have the one and only Lonnie Mack Award.
1: And what is that?
0: Well, that was given, uh, let's see, what year was that? Was that 17? Was that 16? A couple of years back. But there was a group in Cincinnati that did a show called Mack Fest, and they had folks come in and play Lonnie Mack stuff. Well, to me, that was, you know, that was another day in the park. I've been playing Lonnie Mack stuff since... Back in the day, you know, so they had me there and they gave me this Lonnie Mack Award. Well, it turns out that somehow they ran afoul of Holly Mack, Lonnie's daughter, and in terms of um, intellectual property. You know, I don't know the wherewithal of that, actually, but I know they had a falling out over it. So the next year, they didn't call that event Mac Fest. They called it Cincinnati Guitar Fest, and the awards from then on was Cincinnati, Cincinnati Guitar. So I have the one and only Lonnie Mac Award, so I'm kind of glad of it.
1: Yes, you've been featured on the Clear Channel radio station, which is 700 WLW. And by Clear Channel, I mean it's one of the most powerful AM stations anywhere in the world on the AM band. And you used to go on there with a guy named Gary Burbank. Tell everybody what you would do there.
0: That was great times. That was Friday afternoon for Blues Break. And Gary did a character called Howlin' Blind Muddy Slim, your sixty-minute Jelly Belly Toe Jam man. And he played. He did the whole show in this character. And I'd get on and just kind of be me. But I was on that show a whole bunch. As far as I know, I was the. I was on there more than anybody else. That. It wasn't part of the show.
1: Well, after college and the band breaking up, you and I, I later went into broadcasting. As you know, I was working in downtown Cincinnati and doing very well as a DJ, Uh, packing them in at the clubs. I made a good career out of it. Then I went to television. I didn't see you much there. But later on, I entered the field of concert promotion. And when I did that, You were the first person that I called, and we brought in one of the top 12 finalists of the uh, television show American Idol. And that was the rock and roll nurse, Amanda Overmeyer.
0: I remember that.
1: Now, tell everybody about that show. Was that show sold out or not?
0: Oh, my God yeah that was about as full as it could i you know it's funny you mentioned that i i i i didn't remember that at all to you till you just brought it up but oh, yeah that was that was a big deal show and I was glad you brought me in on that i I wasn't quite sure what I was doing there, but i was just <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna do the same thing I do every time you know i've I've got my thing I get up and play my guitar that's about it you know
1: And I'll tell you what you told me. You said because uh, they have a a major uh, uh, sound system there. I mean, this is not your nightclub venue here. This was a concert-quality sound with Bob Lister that would uh, run that thing. Bob Lister was so so good, Sonny, that I later went back, and I said, where's Bob? I want to talk to Bob. They said, oh, no. He's uh, he's out with three dog night. Yeah, they stole uh, sh- him away. The, the three dog night took him out to to the uh, resorts and the casinos and all these places. Do you believe right that?
0: About, right about that. I had just played a show at the, uh, the one of those Blue Ash events in the summer with three dog night. That was funny that you mentioned that. That was right. That was right within the same month or two.
1: Right. Well, I had to bring you in, Sonny. It turned out to be the right choice. I, I sure sold we the show re- out.
0: I sure wish we would have recorded that.
1: I would oh, like to record that. It was it was a, a a good time in my life. And like I was telling the concert promoter, another concert promoter, I I left out of there, Sonny. Believe it or not, with my shirt on. <laughs> they didn't. They did. I didn't lose my shirt. You know. That's awesome. So. Sonny, I can tell you that when we did reconnect years later, I, unbeknownst to me, I bought, I was a customer. I, I was not announcing or emceeing. I wanted to see what Dickie Betts was up to since he went out on his own when the Almond Brothers were not touring. And I had heard through the grapevine that two and a half hours south of Cincinnati, there was a local band down there, and they were known, and you probably know them too. You know everybody. They were called Great Southern. Do you remember oh, them? Sure. sure. So the that's rumor the taller, was that that's it the was.
0: The Brothers and Gold Fleece.
1: Sure. Yeah, yeah. The rumor was that Great Southern had hooked up. With Dickie Betts. And then one day I saw in the newspaper, lo and behold, appearing at the 20th Century Theater, I think it was, live on stage, Dickie Betts and Great Southern. For those right. out there listening that don't know Dickie Betts, he's lead guitar player with the Almond Brothers Band prior to Warren Haynes coming in. So at any rate, I, I show up to see Dickie Betts and Great Southern at the theater. And lo and behold, who warms him up? The Sonny Mormon group. Yeah,
0: man. That was a, that was a good night. Oh, that you know, was a
1: great show.
0: Dickie, Dickie is, a leg, is a legendary character. He truly is. And there's all sorts of stories about him. But I, I can tell you from my experience of the shows that I've played with him, that he could not have been a cooler guy. Oh, he you mean you excellent. played
1: more than one show with him?
0: Yeah, I've played with him. I've played two shows up here and well, I've played with other guys that play with him down in Florida. I mean, I've kind of I've kind of I'm not like involved in their scene, but I've been I've been fortunate enough that they let me share in it a little bit once in a while and uh I got nothing but good things to say about him. Now, that that might not be everybody's opinion, but it's damn sure mine.
1: Well, I've had people ask me, uh, they say, Rick, how do you know Sonny Mormon could have made it on a national basis? How do you know that? I say, the reason why I know that is because I have seen Sonny Mormon warm up the Allman Brothers League guitarist, Dickie Betts, when he had Great Southern out and he rocked the house and everybody, and I do mean everybody there, saw a guitar wizard in the warm-up act, that's you. And then they saw Dickie Betts, and they left out of that theater that night saying, wow, did we get our money's worth here.
0: Yeah. Well, that was Danny Toler playing the other guitar with Dickie that night.
1: And he's an Indiana boy. He's right across. Connorsville, yeah. Yeah, Connorsville, Indiana right yeah. near Miami U, and Billy Bartlett from uh, the Lemon Pipers and Starstruck, uh, the, the the record uh, Black Betty, uh, Bartlett was telling me, was something he did on his couch. He was sitting on a couch in, in his living room, and that's where he got the guitar riff, and he did the arrangement that everybody knows oh, today yeah. of a ram jam, oh, Black Betty, bam, the lamp. Yeah. That all was done, across from Oxford, Ohio by one of Miami University's major top bands the Lemon Pipers oh, later yeah. that was all Billy Bartlett and Sonny it's part of what was a thriving thriving music scene in right here in, in our we're area
0: talking about Danny a second ago. The first time I ran into him was in the house music in Hamilton.
1: There you go. There you go.
0: They were one of the few they, at that time. They were one of the few Gibson dealers around and they were the closest Gibson dealer to Connorsville Indiana I think but anyway they were hanging out there and I didn't I didn't know I was you know I'm I was enough younger than him that I was just some punk kid wandering in and out of the place you know but I can remember hearing his name and seeing him and then later on I, he, he was Danny was like a great guy he he died of uh Lou Gehrig's disease a while ago and uh which is a tough way to go and my buddy willie perkins had nothing but nice things to say about danny of course not only did danny play with with dickie in great southern but danny played in the allman brothers for a little bit
1: oh that's true
0: Danny also played in the Greg Allman band when Willie was managing when Willie was managing that so Willie and, and Danny were real close and just the idea that he and I knew each other and we were from the same place and stuff I think I think probably helped out my cause when Willie and I first started working together because I think he 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 kind of could figure me out from being used to Danny you know we're we're kind of different around here. I've come to find out.
1: And what makes us different around here is it the camaraderie, the fact that everybody knows everybody. What is it?
0: I would say it goes all well. It's that, but it's musically. It's the idea of like like what formed King Records, right? Correct. What formed, what, what made King Records happen is they did R and B and country and they did them they get them in the same room you know the same players played on a, a lot of that stuff you know around here the hamilton scene man there was as much r&b as there was country and guys would play in both bands like you were talking about wayne a little bit ago you know wayne was a, a blue-eyed soul singer like you said when he was young and he ended up a country guy, but there, there's just no difference in that coming from here. You know, you play blues, you play country, you play soul; it's all the same thing.
1: Well, King Records, Sonny was on Brewster Avenue in a in a what is now a rather rundown section of Cincinnati called Evanston. Yep. And Sid Nathan owned it, and Sid Nathan was famous not only for King Records, the, the actual company, but what people admire to this day about Sid Nathan. And this is a true fact. It's well documented. He would hire black employees. He would hire white employees. They would work side by side together. One day he would produce what you would call black R and B or soul. The next day, they would produce country. Sid Nathan knew that there are two kinds of records out there, Sonny. A a good one and B a bad one. And if it sold, then it was a good one. And he could care less whether you were white or whether you were black. He had a business to run. He employed all races. He was non-discriminatory. And he learned something that they still haven't learned in this country today, to this very day, how to get along.
0: Once again, you're preaching to the choir. The the way I remember hearing that said back in the day was the only color he ever saw was green.
1: Amen. Amen. People ask me when I was a concert promoter, what what are you going to put in there? What will make you money? And like I told somebody else, I'll put in there German um, papa, um, papa, polka! pa If I knew that that theater would fill up, the people would show up and enjoy the show. I don't care what kind of music it is, just so long as it fills up that theater and the people enjoy it and have a good time. Now, isn't that what the business is supposed to be about?
0: That would be nice,
1: wouldn't it? It would be nice, that's for sure. Now, Sonny, you... Even though you've dedicated your entire life and your entire career to the greater Cincinnati and, of course, the Hamilton, Ohio scene, where everybody that plays in it knows you, Uh, we don't even need to discuss that. But there was a short period of time in your life where you did decide to go out to California, which you did, and you ended up with the band of a guy that, Most people are going to remember because he did a song called The Werewolves of London. And I. Oh! Werewolves of London. And his name was Warren Zevon. Now, as I understand it, if I remember it correctly, you didn't play behind Warren Zevon, the man. You played with the band that he had after Warren had left them. Is that
0: correct? Here's how that that story goes. Warren, for his 1982 tour, hired a band from, from Southern California called Pecos. But he didn't like the name Pecos, and that band became Z Deluxe. They did the 1982 tour. In fact, there's some good video of those shows. And that's Randy Brown and Larry Larson and Joe Daniels. And John, oh my gosh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed that I forgot John's last name. John's the guy I ended up replacing. And But you can see these, John Wood, I'm so sorry, that would have been the worst thing in the world for me to forgot that. But those guys were Warren's backup band for the 82 tour, and they came off the road. Well, I moved to L.A. in August of 83, and in October of 83, I answered an ad in the Los Angeles Recycler that said, Working Rock and Roll Band needs guitar player and i went and auditioned and sure enough john and the band had had some kind of falling out and i replaced john in z deluxe now the story kept coming down the pipe there was a uh, warren's road manager was a guy named george gruel and george would come around oh geez couple two three times a year with the story oh warren's gonna we're gonna go out to europe and we're gonna go to japan and we're gonna do this and we're gonna do that None of that ever transpired. But I was very fortunate in that I was working with guys that could work around Los Angeles. And I actually made enough money as a musician to live a moderate life in L.A., which is darn near impossible. So I was out there for five years doing that. And at a certain point, I I had a phone out with the, the, the guys in Z Deluxe. And not too long after that ended up moving back to Hamilton but before I went to LA I'd spent 10 years playing in the Michigan bar scene which was thriving in the 70s and 80s that's why you didn't see me much then I was up and we were based out of Lansing Michigan I went to Michigan State which is in East Lansing and I went to school there and then yeah, I, I stayed in Michigan after that and just played in bar bands in Michigan, but it was it was rocking. We had some of the big bars in the state right in Lansing, a place called the Silver Dollar was one of them. Huge big bar, Rush played there, Cheap Trick played there. You know, all that kind of stuff. And we did shows around with the uh, the Rockets and Rick Derringer. And, you know, I mean, we were kind of happening in that scene. But I, I decided that I wanted to move to L.A. And I came home the summer of 83 and worked at Mosler Safe and saved my money. And with a little help from my folks. Put, put all my shit in the 19, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, put all my stuff in
1: it. <laughs> I'm in not going to edit that out.
0: <laughs> in, a, in a 1976 Chevrolet Capri station wagon and drove out to L.A. Um, got a little road crazy on the way out there and was driving through Death Valley. And I was, it was hot, man. This is the middle of August in Death Valley. And it was so hot. I was afraid to turn the air conditioner on because I was afraid it would overheat the car. So I got all the windows open and I'm like, I took my shirt off and I took my shoes off and I'm down to just, just my jogging shorts. Right. And I figured oh, the hell with it. I took them off. So I drove through Death Valley, start naked because it was, it was just too hot to have clothes on.
1: Oh, Lord. But
0: I've, I've, driven, I've driven straight through from here to that point. So I'm going to blame some of that on just road crazy.
1: Is the fact that you came back home from L.A. after five years and everything you went through out there where you made a living and by George, you should have made a living. You know how to play the guitar. Nobody is going to question that, <laughs> especially me when I was a guy that hired you. It's not right. going to happen. Nobody is going to say that you're not gifted on the guitar, but is the reason why you stayed in our area here because of the fact that you enjoyed a stable home life?
0: Yep. You know, my family's here. I'm an only kid. So the truth is it's just it's always been just my mom and dad and me. So I I met who became my wife out in LA and brought her home with me. She'd never been, she'd never been east of Las Vegas till she came home or came here with me. And I've got two kids between her and I that are in their like early thirties, late twenties now. And one of them lives with here with me in the house that I grew up in as a kid. I mean, you know, I've been all over the place and I'm still here.
1: There's no place like home.
0: Yeah, well I've never had I've never really had a home other than here. I've lived a lot of places and been a lot of places, but I never really had any place that was home but here.
1: That is remarkable. Do you remember all that work I was doing in the past with the point blank band? You remember all that? Oh sure. Well, John O'Daniel, their lead singer, was telling me that up until his death, and of course he got married. Uh, to his wife and he was, I believe he was born in the family home. And then after his parents passed away, he lived there. He lived his entire life in the actual Texas home out there in the boonies in Texas. That's where he lived from birth until death.
0: Yep. I can relate to that.
1: All right. How did you get as proficient on the guitar as you are and you're more than just some cat that went to the music store and took uh, six months worth of lessons and learned how to do a little picking do you attribute the ability you have to lessons and being trained by a teacher or do you think that natural talent kind of like for example buddy rich on the drums I don't care what anybody tries to tell me or you. I won't even listen. Buddy Rich was, in my opinion, born. He was not trained. He was gifted. Do you think you have a gift? Or do you think that your ability was brought out by being trained?
0: It's hard for me to say. I can tell you what I think it really was. I mean, yeah, I was fortunate to have lessons with Cal when I was a kid, because at the very least, I could sit there for a half an hour a week and listen to a guy who was a a world-class player. You know, when I went out to the halfway when I was a little kid and I would see Lonnie Mack play, or I would see Troy Seals play, or I'd see Bo Dollar play with Chuck Sullivan playing guitar for him. I mean, I was seeing world-class players. I didn't know they were world-class players. To me, it was, I'm going to see the guy that that teaches me guitar lessons on Friday, then I'm going to go out to see the people that play at my mom and dad's bar, you know, but Come to find out these guys were icons out in the world. That helped. And probably the other thing that helped me was I was not a well-socialized kid. I spent a lot of time by myself, and I spent a lot of time by myself playing guitar.
1: And that is what you put the time in to learn your instrument, like backwards and forwards.
0: Well, thank you. That's a nice thing to
1: say. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, our special guest today on the Rick Flynn Presents podcast worldwide is Sonny Mormon. He is on Atlas Records. He has all kinds of albums there that are available at his website, www.sonny, S-O-N-N-Y, Mormon, M-O-O-R-M-A-N, group. Dot .com sunnymormongroup.com that's where you'll find him he's on facebook legendary musician in our area here one of the greats that goes to the the cammy awards that's put on by the local morning newspaper and he wins awards there he wins awards over here he wins all these awards and goes out and you've never had a problem sonny other than during this covid which shut everybody down and even at that, you managed to do your solo acoustic and somehow keep working. A- am I right? Or has this COVID That's cost I was you? Just
0: fortunate. I was just fortunate enough that some of the people that I work for playing my little solo thing, you know, this didn't really impact them to the extent that it did big bars and touring and stuff. So the lo- the little local stuff I was playing turned out to be a good thing.
1: Right. And Back when WEBN-FM was the number one station in town, back when the Wood family owned them, they actually, which is not the case anymore, it's since been told they're nowhere near number one now, but when they were number one for years, didn't they actually play some of your material on the air?
0: Yep, sure did.
1: And you actually got a boost from local FM radio on the number one FM at that time, just because of the quality of the material.
0: Yeah, we never had we never had money for publicists, which are a necessary evil in this business. Whatever we got, we got because somebody liked what we were playing. But and that's the case with what happened with WEBN. Uh Clear Channel owned them at that point and we're we based out of San Antonio, Texas. Well, there was a guy named Rick Vasky that was the music director here in town. Or was, was he music director? Anyway, he, he worked for EBN and he was way up in it. Everybody called him the dude. Well, the dude took a liking to us. And we had a new record out and he pitched it. And we actually got into what they call X-Rotation. On clear channel, which means, and you you know this from coming from broadcasting X is like they'll play you in the middle of the night.
1: Right. It's you know, not. I mean, it's not, not heavy gonna, rotation. Not spend the
0: time on you. They're not going to spend the time on you in drive time or anything. But they'll put you on in the middle of the night. So that was true of not only EBN but a lot of clear channel stations.
1: I do recall hearing it. And I was just astounded that with the way radio was going. Uh, yeah, that
0: wasn't actually that long ago. That was like oh four, oh five.
1: Yeah, that was amazing. 0-5, five, let's say you had to know somebody, Sonny, in order to get that to happen.
0: Yeah, but I mean, I, I really didn't. It was just a guy that that we met that that turned out to like our music. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't anything more or less than that. But I I certainly appreciated that you know this is 05 and I'm I'm 50 years old right at this point and we're not we're not like teen magazine rock star looking guys but I'll just I'll just be polite about it and say we're not one of the suits from Clear Channel we had a tune called uh, House of Thunder that was that was getting the most of the airplay and most of the little bit of airplay that we were getting the guy actually said, Well, if some young hip guys were doing this, this could be a hit.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my, oh my. There was
0: nothing I could, sadly, Rick, there was nothing I could do about that. We were just some older, unhip guys.
1: Okay, everyone. I cannot tell you what a thrill this has been. Sonny, we have barely scratched the surface of the things I wanted to get and talk about, but... It's like old home reunion day here today. We have some players out there in our area that are making good. We have a new band out there they're telling me about this Blueberry or Blackberry Smoke. Somebody's out there trying to keep Southern Rock alive. And Sonny, what the heck happened to Southern Rock? We're struggling to keep it alive it became it became
0: cliche for a little bit and you know I'm gonna you know when you got a band that's great like the almond brothers but they're playing stuff with synthesizers and stuff like on their later records the whole thing kind of faded but it's nice to see a it's nice to see a band like uh blackberry smoke come out it's nice to hear a band like government mule come out you know not that they're the same band at all but they have some of that same spirit that uh, was like the stuff that came from the late 60s and 70s back when back when it was real
1: absolutely i've interviewed warren haynes that later replaced dickie betts as lead guitarist uh, in the allman brothers
0: he, he played warren's an interesting cat warren played with dickie
1: oh yeah took, that's true
0: took over dwayne's role warren took over dickie's role when dickie got kicked out of the band and uh uh Derek trucks played dwayne's role warren's actually played the each of the roles of the two great guitar players in the allman brothers i mean he's a he's an amazing individual i'm 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 happy to say that that we're friends i mean we're not like close friends like he doesn't come over and spend the night or nothing but we're we're buddies
1: he you know, is a. He was a wonderful person to me to know. He was a well-spoken man. Uh, you, I don't know if you know this, but he's also a philanthropist. He gives up out of his own pocket to good causes. He's a good man. Did you know that he tries to help out when he can, when people are in need?
0: The Christmas jam that he sponsors every year makes some serious money for folks.
1: And that is excellent. I love Warren Haynes. I uh, really felt that he was just not only good with the Almond Brothers, but absolutely good with um, Government Mule. And he's on that Blackberry Smoke. He's on that yes, brand yes. new. I
0: just, I just heard that. I just heard yes. that yesterday or the day before. I
1: absolutely. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, we could go on, but we're running a little overtime right now. Sonny, the best thing I can do is ask you right now, At a later date, some other time, can we continue this? Will you come back on?
0: Oh, heck yeah.
1: All right. So at this time, Sonny, I guess what we're just going to have to do, unfortunately, is just have you to say, goodbye, Sonny. Goodbye, Sonny. (laughs) Oh, ladies and gentlemen atlas recording artist sonny mormon right here on the show today we appreciate him coming on this is the guitar player's guitar player everybody knows him around here he's well known throughout the blues community nationwide The Allman Brothers managed him for a while with Willie Perkins, of course. He has had a career, and he still plays. We love this man. He's a good, good musician. He's a great musician. And we are glad to have each and every one of you out there listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. This is Rick Flynn speaking. It's been fun, but I've got to run. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you on the next one. Bye-bye. The preceding was a Rick Flynn production. This is your announcer, Chantal Marie speaking.